Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is your host, Trevor Hall. Thank you so much for a wonderful week here on the podcast. We are going to leave you this week with our in-depth episode. We've got two segments. First, we're welcoming in Edward Harrison uh, from Credit Writedown's newsletter, and then also Real Vision to give us his take on Fed the Fed's uh, announcements this week. Well, it wasn't much of an announcement, but the doubling down of what they've currently been doing and also the bond vigilantes and the bond market analysis. So great macro discussion with with Ed here. That's going to be our first segment. Second segment is a really a long form panel discussion, uh, welcoming back some heavy hitters within the junior mining industry. Doug Ramshaw, Alex Black, and the one and only Matthew Keevil joins us once again. So it's just a lovely time to when you can get Matthew Keevil back on the airwaves. So a lot to cover in uh, both sections. Uh, it's going to be well worth your time to listen to the uh, episode in its entirety. We would like to thank all of our sponsors, including Integra Resources, Western Copper and Gold, Corvus Gold, and Rio 2. We appreciate your continued support of the podcast as we approach quickly our 100 excuse me our thousandth episode it's coming down it's happening people a couple weeks time all right everybody so let's get to my conversation with ed well then we'll take a quick break and go to the panel discussion with the three gentlemen have a wonderful weekend be well Welcome into our first segment of our long-form in-depth interview here this Friday morning as we get you into the weekend. Uh, we are welcoming back a guest. Uh, he is the writer of the Credit Write-Downs newsletter. He is also uh, a, a, a very important person over at Real Vision. Uh, welcoming back Mr. Ed Harrison. Hey, Ed, how you doing? Good, Trevor. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Uh, we, I wanted to spend a few minutes uh, really kind of getting your thoughts here on uh, this continued saga of the bond market versus the Fed. Uh, this week we heard from the FOMC, Jay, uh, Jay Powell really uh, basically put up a nothing burger just saying it's more of the same, uh, doubling down on what the Fed is doing. Uh, you are calling the bond market and these players here bond vigilantes. And I just wanted to kind of provide you an opportunity here for the for our listeners to kind of get your sense on why these are vigilantes and and really why this moment in in time and our economic history is so important yeah so i think that uh this term bond vigilantes or bond market vigilantes comes back from the 90s uh and the whole ruben era and actually as we're talking i'm looking it up uh on uh on uh, the internet um to see what uh, what uh, Wikipedia and so forth are saying, and they're saying pretty much the same thing I'm saying. Uh, from October '93 to November '94, it says here U.S. yields climbed from 5.2 to 8 percent, fueled by concerns about the federal spending, in which became uh, informally known as the Great Bond Massacre. I remember that uh, in particular because a lot of people lost their jobs, who I knew on Wall Street, and. Ruben, he was the treasury secretary at the time. And basically the whole thinking was, is, is that 
you know, the bond market, you needed to listen to them. I think even James Carville, he, uh, he was part of that administration. He was talking about the bond market being the beast in the room and so forth. And so the whole thinking was is the bond market could push the Fed around and uh, other central banks around that when they wanted to, they could send rates higher. But when I think of the bond market vigilantes, I don't think of it that way at all. I think of uh, the bond market as really uh, front-running Fed moves. They're not saying, we're going to push you around and force you to do X or Y. We are uh, anticipating that you're going to do X or Y in the future. And uh, as a result, yields go up. But to the degree that a central bank, whether it's the Fed or the Bank of England or whatever other central bank is facing down bond market bond market vigilantes, they can have resolve. They can continue to hold the line on what they want to hold as long as they're willing to accept the consequences of doing so. And so the bond vigilantes have only as much power as the central bank allows them to have, given the constraints from a policy perspective that the government and the, and the central bank want to solve for collectively. This is that ongoing game of chicken between the market and the Fed here. But how much, I mean, how much room does the Fed have left here? I mean, you and I are recording here Thursday morning. The 10-year jumped up again, uh, 1.73-ish as we are recording. Uh, that's a big move up from yesterday, even after Jay Powell spoke. I mean, really, how much does he have left here? Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, $50,000 question or $64,000 question, I think it's supposed to be. Um, <laughs> We were at 90 basis points uh, at the beginning of the year. So we've doubled almost in terms of the number. So that's a pretty big move. That's one of the biggest moves that we've seen in the recent past in terms of interest rates going up. It's hard to know where the breakage occurs because it's not just the level of the move, it's over the time period. You know, it was very quick move up here we are, March, so we're talking two and a half months, and we're already doubling the uh, the interest rate. I, I don't re I don't have an answer. Uh, obviously, I'm guessing as much as anyone else. I'm looking at levels that are just above this. You know, two percent is one level that I think is interesting, but it's hard to say. Uh, but my view is that this move will continue higher as long as the economy is running well. And then it will just continue to go either until we see some carnage on the equity and credit markets or until the Fed changes its uh, policy stance. So those are the things that will trigger. You have three different outcomes. Uh, the economy uh, changes course, the Fed changes course, or we have some sort of financial accident. Yeah. Uh, Jay Powell mentioned uh, a forecast of economic growth of north of 6% yesterday. I mean, big move. Uh, and you had mentioned in a recent uh, newsletter posting uh, on your site that uh, a reminder, you know, the the market is not necessarily the real economy. That's, I mean, I, I think during COVID that, relationship has been vague because obviously it feels like the market has been the the economy because the market's done so well while the economy real economy has done so poor um but can we continue to have can you could could you see a a 
a bear market with a continued growing real economy here, say in the next year or two? Uh, yeah, you could definitely see a bear market. And uh, are you talking about inequities, right? Yeah, inequities, yeah. Yeah, uh, you could see the equities fall 20, 30%. I mean, they did fall 20% in December 2018 as a result of the Fed's hiking. It hiked the fourth time in 2018, which uh, was enough to put the, it was sort of the straw on the camel's back. Uh, but you could definitely get to that level. And then the question is, is, is that enough to destabilize markets? Is it enough to tighten financial conditions? Because that's really all the Fed cares about. They're concerned about making sure that credit is freely available, that's not interfering with the functioning of the real economy, that uh, you know unemployment continues down. But if, for instance, everything else being equal, you have a fall of 20% in the market, and nothing really bad happens, then the Fed will be fine with that. Uh, so it's definitely possible, given that that's where I believe the Fed is from a policy perspective. Uh, I want to get your thoughts here on gold, because uh, we were in this, I, I called gold, uh, it kind of had a personality crisis here uh, for a few days trading. I know it's, it, you know, a few days trading is just a very small point of the entire economic life lifeline, but um you know, while bond while the ten year was moving up, gold was actually moving up in tandem or holding pretty steady, which is obviously very bullish for the metal. At the same time, the gold miners were moving up, outperforming gold. Uh, you, I, I'm just seeing it from the conversations you're having, people you follow uh, and and listening to. Uh, where are we? Is gold getting starting to get a little bit more of a of a buy here, and why is that? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know what the answer is, but you know, uh, rather than look at gold, let's think of silver also, which is okay. a similar base metal, and that's a a, a a precious metal that also has some sort of economic power. You know, when the economy goes up, you need to use silver more. It's an industrial metal of sorts. And if you look at the price chart for silver, really, uh, it doesn't really look that great. Meaning that uh, if you look at sort of an intermediate peak since uh, January, uh, maybe you could look and see one at you know near the end of, of, of February, around February 22nd. There was a you know that spike that we had in January, but otherwise, gold is flat to trend, or sorry, silver is flat to trending down. So to me, what that says is that uh, if you believe in the reflation trade, what the what, you should expect silver to be going up, uh, not only because of of inflation, but also because of reflation. That is, is that the economy is doing better, and on top of that, there's a potential of inflation. You, it shouldn't be that silver is flatlining, but it is. And so to me, that suggests that the uh, real interest rate is potentially an impediment to gold and silver is moving higher. So when, when the real interest rate goes uh, higher, gold is not as interesting a hedge because it doesn't pay a interest rate. Uh, it, it's relatively speaking less uh, interesting as a store of value. So I think that that is what's playing out right now. 
Uh, Ed, I know we only have a short amount of time with it. My last question uh, for you is really as we, we're coming, we're halfway through the month. Uh, we're going about, we're almost closing March, therefore also closing the first quarter of 2021. As we progress through uh, the next two weeks, really what are some things you are watching uh, and maybe want to look at as we do close that quarter down? What are some indicators that maybe will help you form an opinion of how we progress through the rest of the year? Yeah, well, let me tell you, um, before I tell you what I'm watching, what I'm thinking about, uh, the thing that's the biggest on my mind, as we were talking, the thing that's on my mind that a lot of people don't think about when they think about the policy regime that we're in and the limitations of the central bank and so forth is the 1976 UK uh, sterling crisis. Uh, in 76, uh, there was a balance of payments currency crisis in the UK. Uh, and basically, the UK government under Callahan went hat in hand to the IMF asking for $3.9 billion worth of, uh, of funds, uh, which is you know, the equivalent of $17.5 billion in today's money, uh, $18 billion in today's money. And the question is, is why? If the, if the UK government is a monetarily sovereign nation uh, with no liabilities in foreign currencies, they could do whatever they want in terms of their policy regime, both from a fiscal and a monetary perspective, because essentially they're just giving IOUs out. Even if they are running uh, you know, uh, twin deficits, it, it, it's all paper money that they can print in infinite, infinite qualities. But the problem is, is the currency. The problem is, is the release valve for, for this in this fiat age is the currency. And at that particular time, in 76, the uh, imported inflation into the UK, this is, remember this is pre-North uh, Sea oil, was so large uh, that it was a real problem, not only in terms of wage earners, but you know, in, a, in a situation in which they, they had lots of, um, of unrest you know, you're basically taking the average wage earner and you're telling them, I'm making you poorer by our, our policy. And, uh, and, you know, you may not even have a job. So that's not something that's going to get you reelected. To me, that's kind of, that's really what you have to be thinking about in the back of your mind. What are the things that will force a government and a central bank to act differently in order to uh, even if they're monetarily sovereign, the way that the United States is with the Federal Reserve. Uh, this is what's playing out right now. So that's sort of like in extremis, the kind of thing that would happen. This is what the bond vigilante uh, paradigm is all about. That sort of thing where the UK government, basically they face a policy constraint from an, a political perspective that meant that they needed to borrow from the IMF, even though legitimately they didn't have to do it. They just felt so constrained by the inflation that that's what ended up happening. Yeah, very uh, so in that context, uh, paradoxically, what I'm looking at is the opposite of happening. You know, to me, everyone is crowded into the trade of inflation, reflation, uh, problems similar to the ones that I was talking about with the UK government. I'm actually thinking that 
the uh, when everyone's crowded into that trade, then you know the heads that you should be thinking about is on the opposite side. So when we look at the seven day a positive infection rate in Germany going up from 69 per 100,000 is 90 per 100,000. And at the same time, the AstraZeneca vaccine being halted temporarily, that's a situation in which you could have a third wave in Europe that shuts down Europe. And Europe is ahead of the United States uh, in, in that regard, meaning the B117 variant of the UK mutation of coronavirus is further advanced in Europe relative to the US. So it's only a couple of weeks. By the end of this month, beginning of April, let's just see what happens with regard to the vaccines versus uh, the B117 variant in the US. Because the US is now opening up. Everyone's thinking, you know, it's gangbusters growth going forward. That is a, a perfect example of where the gray swan is exactly the opposite. And that would be a yield curve flattening type of scenario. So that's what I'm looking for uh, because that's the trade that no one is looking at right now. And to me, that's where uh, if you wanna take a contrarian bet, you'd wanna do so. It does seem like the US has some peripheral blinders on now that we're opening up and the US data is looking good, vaccinations have, been finally been successful that uh you know it seems like we're ready to to go gung-ho and we don't really care what's going on in the rest of the world because we've just been so locked up and pent up for a year let's just like let, let's just go and funny story like uh, up in the mountains one nice hotel had to um uh remove 24 hotel guests one night because things got out of control uh up in a shranky resort and the same night is when uh college students from boulder uh, basically a house party turned into a mob riot the same night. I mean, these, like these actions are just showing that like the, like emotions are kind of getting ahead of themselves here, but we don't care what's happening with the vaccine yeah, outside I mean, of the US. Year, we're, we're ready to explode. We want to get out of this, this lockdown mentality. And unfortunately the coast isn't entirely clear. Uh, yeah. actually, reopening now with the variants starting to take over that are more mutated, uh, more virulent and, and can pass from one person to the next more easily, that makes it a potential uh, gray swan. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's the thing to look out for. The, the positive obviously is, is, is that the US is vaccinated so much and you know, the over 65s who are the ones who are most vulnerable, they're really far ahead in terms of their vaccination progress. So it may not come to pass that this is going to be a huge wave. But I think that's the the sort of tail risk here. Uh, Ed, I appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, you and I will be catching up here in a couple of weeks. So, I, you know, until then, my yeah. friend, stay healthy. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see how the markets unravel here in the next two weeks. Good talking to you, and uh, we'll we'll get you on our side on uh, Real Vision. <laughs> big time, hitting the big time. All right, thanks, Ed. Appreciate you.
And we are back here with the second segment of Mining Stock Daily in our Friday long form interview. Uh, we're going to do something new and a little bit different today. Uh, I have a four person panel, three individuals, including myself. Uh, we're going to kind of open up the airwaves here. Uh, but uh, we tried to uh, bring you some of the best of the best throughout junior mining and development. Uh, so let's go around the table here. First, from joining us from Alberta, the Doug father himself, Mr. Doug Ramshaw, joining us from Lima, <laughs> Mr. Alex Black from Rio 2. And ladies Yay. and gentlemen, somebody I'm really excited to have on because only this person had to get permission from the company. So we went out, find the old press credentials, got them laminated once again for our good old friend, Matthew Keevil from now with Ivanhoe Mines. Hey, Matt. Hey, Trevor. It's uh, It's been a little while. I think Trevor and I go back, oh my gosh, five to seven years on, on podcasting. I, I can't remember the first time we met in Vancouver when you just started Clear Creek Digital, I think. I yeah. can't even remember the year, but yeah, it's been, you, you've taken what we were doing with the minor podcast and it's just like, it's great to see you doing what you're doing. I mean, it's it's a, it's a boon to the industry, I think. So I'm, I'm really happy to come on. No, thanks, Matt. Uh, it's uh, we do miss you. You know, you're that super silky voice of yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I thank you, thank you. I, I won't say anything further on that. Okay. So Matt, now you're dealing with Australians and Brits more. Often. I don't know. Yeah. We need some more of you, you guys. I think. Okay. Yeah, so let, let's lay down some ground rules here, fellas. So obviously, banter is allowed with respectful banter. That's what we're going to get. I expect that and endorse it. Uh, we're going to kind of open up the conversation here. This is more of a uh, thought piece, uh, some panel discussion on some general themes that have been coming down uh, the pipeline throughout junior mining uh, and exploration. Uh, it's not, it's less of a focus on your individual companies and more of, uh, you know, just talking about general things that are coming down from the, the news and the tape. Obviously you can speak about your company in reference to whatever. Uh, but again, I re-encourage banter is, will be respected. So, uh, biggest news that uh, I've really been taking away in the last couple of weeks is we have this resurgence of mergers and acquisitions that have come down the mining sector. Uh, not only have we seen acquisitions, we've seen all cash deals with nice premiums, uh, something we really did not see all of 2020 2020 during COVID or before. Um, Alex, let's start with you. I mean, this has got to be a good sign for junior mining. Uh, are you surprised to see it starting to happen now? No, I'm not surprised, but I guess, you know, it just, just depends on the targets that have been uh, looked at. Um, you know, all cash, obviously the the guys doing the buying have got the cash to, to be able to throw it around and, and, and pay a premium. Um, you know, I mean, it's great. Um, hopefully it continues. I, I've always said, you know, even since the dark days, that this business needs consolidation. And, uh, you know, we've, we've tried to be a part of it. And it's been very difficult. Um, you know, the, it's just a difficult process to go through. So I guess if you've got cash and you can throw a nice premium on the table, it's very hard to resist for some for most people. And, um, and, and for, you know, obviously boards like what, who we represent and are on have to do the right thing by our shareholders when those sorts of opportunities come up. But um, yeah, no, it's a great thing. Yeah. I mean, Doug, if you are producing gold 
And throughout 2020, you were producing, uh, you know, selling an ounce of gold anywhere between 17 to $1,900. Uh, your margins were obviously good. Your energy costs, the cost of oil was down most of the year. Uh, so you should be floating in cash. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, the funny thing is, I, maybe this would have happened sooner if it hadn't been for COVID. But in, instead, uh, the majors have actually approached things, I think, trying to appeal to generalists, cleaning up the balance sheets, do, de dealing with the sins of the past. And now they are on operations that they kind of rationalize to work in a lower price gold environment, they're printing cash. So, you know, I think we, we will see more of this, I think, in, into next year. And part of that is, You've seen companies, I've seen fund managers that have extolled the virtues of, say, a Kirkland Lake that has returned, you know, X percentage of their margin to shareholders in the forms of dividends and buybacks and, and the like. What's it done? Has it done them any good, really, in, in the big scheme of things? I don't think so. Like, you know, so maybe it's time not to appeal to generalists and give them what they apparently want but don't want to pay up for. Uh, instead, they should actually be looking at their business, which is a depleting business with each and every year. So it's good to see Newmont, you know, that sold their stake in Continental Gold and the very next day did a billion dollar share buyback. I think Alex and I were both lamenting that on Twitter at the time. And then they did another one. Uh, now they're, they're committing, committing some cash. That, that's got to be good for the sector because I think we've got to acknowledge that, you know, what we are as an industry. And, and so... Um, yeah, I, I, I hope I hope post-COVID we see a, a continual move uh, in the M&A space. And just just on the banter side, I mean, and and, and yeah, yeah, right on there. And I hate I hate share buybacks, and I think Doug and I are probably in the same boat. But um, and, and I I hope we, we can pick on companies in this in this call because I'm going to pick on somebody. Well, I'll um, you, uh, <laughs> you do it way better than me. Alex. No, no. I mean, it's just just really interesting because because some people are programmed, or else they listen to bankers, or they I don't know who they listen to. But the other day, Jaguar Mining announced a dividend. Now, if anybody's been following Jaguar Mining for the last ten years, it's been a catastrophe, you know, and it's just clawing itself back up, you know, of high gold price, better management. And then it starts to pay a dividend and it's only got, you know, I'm at $50 million in the bank or something or 30 to $50 million. It's like, what are you doing? You know, uh, and admittedly the dividend's only six or 7 million bucks. But for me, as Doug's talking about, you know, hang on to that money and use that money wisely, maybe buying some more ground in Brazil or wherever, you know, you're doing business, but some people are just going crazy. So I think the majors, have got to this limit and they saw you know that it wasn't accreting value to their to their companies by doing these buybacks and things and and, and they've decided okay well let's deploy the capital in, in in doing these transactions and buying some quality assets or what they consider to be quality assets but you know i mean then then i see jaguar and i go god blimey you know how do they make those decisions sorry i'm picking on somebody sorry jaguar if you're listening <laughs> to this but i'm just using it as an example Oh, um, and yeah, I, I was actually just listening there because I was interested to hear what uh, Dave and Alex were going to say, because there is a bit of an, an issue with gold equities, uh, not really particularly reflecting their profitability or cash flow. Um, I mean, if you want to pick out some of the major guys, I think like, you know, for example, Kinross last year finished with 1.2 billion in cash and equivalents and 
according to some numbers I've seen from BMO holding everything steady, they could have over $3 billion in cash and equivalents by 2022. Um, and, you know, traditionally, when I look at that as, as I, I guess I would qualify myself as a value investor, is that bad? I don't know. I, anyway, we're not supposed to be value investors anymore. But, um, <laughs> you know, from my perspective, gosh, why would you not buy that at, 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 at their current valuation? It's sort of nuts. So, um, yeah, it was interesting to hear what the guys had to say, because there is sort of an issue. And I, I don't know if it's a... Uh, uh, a personality issue or a, a you know wh where the gold space is going to go to get their multiples back up because it, you know uh from our perspective i mean obviously we're more on the base metal side in terms of copper zinc uh we do have pgms and we do have a, a, a rather large gold component our plat reef project um which we're working on actually streaming uh possibly right now but yeah i know it, it's interesting from our our neck of the woods because we're more so obviously on this electrification copper sort of story that's so hot right now so to for us to look over on the other side of the fence and see the gold producers with such strong margins not particularly being rewarded for for very strong cash flow it, it's interesting to me and 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 you know you've heard neil frondman from sabania recently in south africa uh talking about the need like alex said for um some roll-ups or or some consolidation in the sector for the gold the gold the gold folks to get you know maybe more attention from larger scale investors etc so no i'd be really like uh again we're more we're more obviously on the base metal side so it's really interesting to hear from the gold side sort of you know what do you guys think the solutions are for, for that for that equity discount well you you mentioned kinross uh maybe three billion dollars cash next year or two uh, their market cap right now is just over eight and a half billion yeah, so, I mean, it's you, know. you talk you like this is a good conversation because I've I've asked other macro analysts here on the podcast, uh, you know, if we talk about this rotation from growth the overall growth stocks, you know, the big tech stocks, the high flyers, we're starting to see that rotation into more value investing, even though valuations don't necessarily mean anything because nobody cares right now, unless you think everybody everything's overvalued, but valuations don't matter. I mean. Is the mining is the, is the miners and the gold miners are they going to be part of this transition into value stocks if it continues to get some momentum? Well, I, I mean, you mentioned the big tech. Like, I mean, Amazon acknowledges that they still got to invest in their growth. I mean, you know, they they put a tremendous amount every year. The mining companies, uh, you know, are almost. It, it's almost like they, they don't acknowledge at times that, you know, they have to be growth. Maybe it's because they've got through some of these MOEs, which I think have actually been good for the industry, uh, you know, because you bring your shareholders along saying, look, there's not a premium on the deal that gets eaten up by the ARP funds by the time there's a close. You're going to have the premium by, by sitting with this expanded company that's scaled up. And at the very top end, you've got companies which are of such scale, nothing really moves the needle for them anymore. But you know, as an industry, and certainly the mid-tiers, you know, they, I mean, the, the capital has, there has to be better returns investing in the business. You know, whether you want to acknowledge you've got a depleting asset base or not, then buybacks and dividends, you know, and it, it just feels like um, this was a, Rather like at the Denver Gold Show, you had uh, a, a whole bunch of fund managers sign on to a letter saying that the industry should be doing a better job. And, and I, I don't think that that was so much uh, targeted at the industry, but actually targeted at generalists saying, look, we've got your back now because the majors, the majors have done a better job of not doing pulling the trigger on $7 billion deals in, in Mauritania anymore. Those kinds of, you know, um, 
and it feels like we're trying to appeal to an investor that doesn't get our sector. So maybe we should just, you know, start looking inwardly again and uh, and and do things the old way, but with be better fiscal discipline. Which, at least up until now, and maybe it was purely COVID, you know, they they've shown certain control on 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 discipline on M and A. And you know, what's interesting, interesting though, on Kinross again. I mean, like a day after they put out those those annuals where they they reported that cash flow, they immediately said, "Oh, we're contemplating a share buyback." Right. Like the, the next thing they said in the next breath was, hey, we're contemplating a share buyback. And I think in some ways, like they might a little bit be at the end of their rope with how they compete with these generalist, you know, the growth disruption focused tech outfits that that don't have that cash flow, but do systemic share buybacks or have done so over the last 24 months. So the gold guys are just looking at it being like, well, you know, if, if Apple is getting rewarded so much for these share buybacks, I mean, you know, why aren't we going to get in on the party? I mean, is it just a question of they're out of options or, or, or you know, how, like, if you're fighting that hard to get your multiple up, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, if it, if it isn't the right thing to do at this time, if you have that much cash, at least not, not in the entirety of that cash position, but some sort of, um, you know, some sort of bone for your shareholders, if you have that much money on the sheet. But if right? you're depleting, if you're depleting your reserves, which every major gold producer shows that reserves are depleting, they're running about 80, 85%, give or take. And you have all this money in the bank and you go to a share buyback program, then rather than figuring out how to quickly fill those coffers back up, if not more, I mean, that's gotta be a hard decision to make in that boardroom. huh? I'd say so. Yeah, no, I, I, you got a good point, Trevor. I mean, just for some more numbers for, um, I, I have a few just on the back of my head that, that, that popped up. I mean, we talk about M and A and if you look in 2020, I think there was about six, you know, like, Total deals were about 60. I think we had about the same deal we had as in 2019, but the deal worth as in the, the money volume was lower because in 2019 we had Barrick, Rangold, and Goldcorp Newmont. So that drove the value of the mergers way up. But the actual number of deals last year were, were actually, uh, I think, incrementally larger than they were in 2019. Um, and the interesting thing is 50 of those deals, I think, were gold deals and 10 of them were base metal deals. So what you're really seeing, I think, is and you heard Mark Bristow talk about it recently. They were looking to buy copper copper assets. They they were trying to grab Freeport. And uh, the, one of the big takeaways I saw from the BMO conference this year was a lot of the uh, gold companies are still talking about copper, and, yeah. and they're they're very keen on looking to diversify into copper. Yeah, it's funny uh, how that it's funny how that conversation seemed to end as soon as copper went up north yes, of four bucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in fairness to them, it might be easier for Alex and I because we're we're developing gold companies which are still in that the, those early growth days. All those majors at one point were companies that started out like Alex's and, and mine. It's a lot easier to look at how you can be a growth story when you're starting from zero and going to 50 or 100,000 ounces and what you can do thereafter. You know, but it, it, it feels like there's a lack of creative thought process that's going on as to how, how the bigger companies could still, still approach, you know, presenting more of a growth profile. Yeah, the, the big difficulty I see for, for the big guys is getting projects of, of scale because, um, and, and, and probably the company that did it the best was Kirkland when they, when they uh, acquired Detour because that is a project of scale. Um, there was obviously, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, them moving from, from high-grade underground to, to uh, low-grade open pit. But I think it's going to be a great transaction for them. 
But but then you look at it, guys like Equinox, right? Now Equinox have just been an M and A machine since beginning because you know obviously that's Ross Beatty's um, MO is, is to do that. And um, but but then they've just taken over Premier, and that's going to push them to about ten operating mines, eight to ten operating mines, if, if, if my memory serves me right. Then it becomes a bit of a difficulty because you know when you've got eight and ten mines sure you might be producing i don't know 500,000 ounces a year but it becomes a management you know uh you know over overhead or not not overhead but a but a challenge to manage that many mines so you know the big guys are already at that stage you know the barracks the new mines have already at the you know the eight to ten mines so the next mine they acquire has to be of the scale of detour or something like that because you know, just adding, you know, another two, three, four hundred thousand ounces, but, you know, just becomes chewing into, into management sort of. Um, uh, um, uh, yeah, you know, so I just wonder how challenging it is. I've got some, I've got, I've got something shiny in my eye here that I'm going to have to cover in a minute, but um, it's just, just, it's just interesting to see how, um, how they manage and, and how they're thinking about what the M&A should be. Yeah. So, you know, Equinox did go in and they now have 60% of that hard rock mine uh, sharing it with, I think it was Orion. Uh, but that's, you know, that's a ways away from production. So it was a little bit off. The one, what, one of the recent acquisitions I want to get your thoughts on here, because it was kind of a uh, twister for me. And we talked about the majors needing to fill their reserves back up. Newmont meant, uh, goes in and acquires this G, the GT Gold uh, company with the project in um, the Gold Triangle in BC. I mean, nowhere even close. I mean, that's still basically a late exploration play from what I can understand. Uh, but that's not going to fill oh, hang that. On, hang, on, hang on, Trevor. Hang on, okay. Trevor. A couple of things going on there. There was a dissident shareholder revolt going on in the mm. background. Don't know if you're following that. And, and the other thing was they were already there with 19% or 18%. So I think they stepped in there for 300 odd million or $400 million, whatever it was, to just blow up that dissident shareholder action and just clean it up. Now, does it move the needle for, for, for Newmont? I don't think so, but it just cleans it up. Let's keep going, let, let the guys keep going with that thing. And, and maybe it's gonna turn into a Newmont style project uh, later on down the track. So. I think there was a few machinations going on there that that pushed him into that. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll keep banging the drum, Trevor. That also had a large copper component to it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think there is going to be a rush on BC porphyries if there's not already one. Um, just based on the fact, uh, and we can get into this a little bit later in the podcast, but on a lot of these ESG metrics and stuff like that. Um, I see a lot of benefits to mining in British Columbia. Um, and I think uh, you, you probably saw the news BHP just moved their exploration headquarters back to Toronto. Um, I think people are going to see a lot of benefit in um, mining in jurisdictions that have access to abundant renewable energy, and that includes hydropower. Um, so British Columbia um, is probably, I would not be surprised, I've not heard anything or, or anything like that, if it's viewed as somewhat of a strategic jurisdiction due to the fact you can produce low carbon metal there. Um, and given the rise of the ESG metrics, if you can do that, hypothetically, um, you're, a, you're a better ESG actor, which gives you access to deeper and a more higher quality pools of capital. And uh, I could see people actually 
in the long run, not being as worried about grade as they are today, um, because I think what we're going to end up seeing is the subsidization of quote unquote green metal to the point where these these oceans of low grade copper in BC start to make a lot more sense if they're government subsidized because they happen to be on renewable grids. So um, that's where we might end up going in the long run. Um, I think a lot of issues are going to come around uh, operations that are run off diesel and run off coal, um, and they're going to be harder and harder to finance uh, as we move ahead here in the next 10 years or so. Uh, not, not so much small scale gold operations because you guys aren't moving as much rock as, as you would be in a, in a large tonnage operation. But I, I just have a suspicion that Quebec and BC have a little bit of a leg up because of the hydro capacity on, on, on future development. But, but on the other side of the equation, what about the pristine wilderness that's going to get disturbed by all this rush into that area? Yeah. Yep. No, no, I, yeah. yeah. I, I live down here in South America and, uh, uh, you know, social license is everything. And at the moment, yeah, you know, the green light's on in BC. How long is that green light going to be on for? Well, well we're hope, yeah, we're hopeful with the government here, I think. I mean, they've been saying the right things in Canada. Doesn't um, come, right. you know, but as far I, as I'm concerned, it's got nothing to do with the government. Yeah, no, no fair enough. And, and I, I think you've touched on on a big thing I've, I've been thinking about the last few years, Alex, which is the, the bottleneck to the varying technological advancements that the, you know, people with a, a very green vein running through their bodies, uh, and, and we should all want... You know, ultimately, the bottleneck for that is 19th century uh, holes in the ground. And it's going to be a very interesting fight that they have to have with themselves that they want this clean technology and this advancement that's good for the environment. Um, there, there is a trade-off. And that, and, and as, as companies, we then need to be good corporate stewards and, and, and show that mining isn't bad. Uh, the reclamation of, of old projects can be taken, taken care of and everything else. But it's, it's going to be a very interesting battle in the hearts and minds of, of environmentalists um, because 19th century mining techniques uh, are still going to be employed to get them their 21st, 22nd century technology. Um, and that's a battle that's still not being had. Um, I think we're going to start seeing with, with the change in administration in the U.S., we're going to start seeing what the early signs of that battle are going to be, because for the kind of investment that w these kinds of projects need, we need to be able to speed up permitting and development time. Yeah. And, and, and that's going to be a, a fight for the next few years. And, and Matthew, just, just, and I'm not trying to be a poo-pooer of, you know, these, these big, um, you know, renewable energy things or anything like that. But, you know, when you look at, when you look at, Mining in 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 BC in the past in in the GT in the Golden Triangle etc. It's all been little underground shows and all this sort of stuff. Now all of a sudden there's going to be these big gouging pits in the in the in the topography if these projects go ahead. As Doug was saying, you know it's going to be an interesting dynamic. And and I was watching an interview of you, Doug, um, on Crux the other day. And, and, and Matt was saying that one of his investment group was, was asking, well, you know, um, obviously the government wants to generate jobs, so that they're going to green light your project and all this sort of stuff, you know. And, and I think you answered it well, and I'm not going to steal your thunder from what you answered, but at the end of the day, it's got very little to do with the government. It's got to do a lot with the people that are impacted by that project, socially, environmentally, et cetera. 
and sure, employment is one aspect of it, but there's a lot more to it. Correct, Doug? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's multi-layer. I mean, yeah, I think the, the, the thing I said in there was social license and, and getting approval from, from, from communities and stuff. That, that is as important as having a resource that reconciles correctly or having the right metallurgical work. You know, you miss any one of those and, and your project's torpedoed. So yeah. uh, I, to me, they have equal weighting. In fact, social license should be as much a part of a PEA um, as, as an input um, as, as any of those other aspects. And as we know, a government can approve an EIA, but it's the, you know, it's the social side that can stop the building of the project, yeah. right? Even though you've got an approved EIA, socially it can be, no, we don't want this project. I think I think you guys have hit on a really interesting tension point, and 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 we're dealing it with it at high level finance even now. I think, and that's that's not only um, you know this sort of question. I think tailings is going to be the big freaking thing that we as an industry have to deal with is waste. What are we going to do with the waste? Um, you can't just dry stack everywhere, as we all know, it doesn't work. I'm cognizant I'm dealing with two experienced mine builders here, so I'm going to be careful with my my engineering talk. But. Uh, <laughs> Um, um, yeah, we're really fortunate, for example, in the DRC, because we have an underground mine, we're backfilling, we, uh, we have access to abundant hydropower, uh, we have a, you know, between seven to 8,000 people building the mine and 90% of them are local Congolese. So from, from our perspective, I think our company was sort of built with what you guys are saying in mind. And that's Robert Freeland always says, now everybody's got a cell phone. And those are basically equivalently to many NGOs walking around everywhere. So anything we're doing, uh, is is popping up on the internet. Uh, I'm sure we all follow follow Mining Watch's Twitter account, which is quite quite active, um, and uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's getting impossible for us not to be transparent. And I I think the next generation of the companies will be building uh, transparency. You know, because there's good actors and there's bad actors in every business. I mean, I, I hate people who generalize mining because it's just that's disingenuous. I mean, there, there's, there's, you can take any industry and say there's really bad actors and there's really good actors. Um, but I think the good actors are going to rise to the top now. Um, and that's going to be through really, really high level transparency. And we're going to communicate to people why we're doing what we're doing, how we're doing it, and we'll do our best to do it. Um, but the thing that I think comes in interesting with this BC thing with, with, you know, we can, you know, could be an indigenous first nation issue, et cetera. Um, is is the balkanization of these supply chains we're seeing, and 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 it's very interesting to me how China wants to build their own supply of metals, Europe wants to build their own supply of metals, and now you've had the Biden administration come out, and just earlier today I saw a, a Reuters article um, that said the U.S. is looking to Canada to secure their uh, EV critical metals, and, and and it's very interesting because everything we're talking about. It, you know, it's hard to predict and we don't know what's going to happen. But there's one thing I'm pretty sure we can all agree on is this all of this is heavily inflationary. And this this is very inflationary and it's going to drive higher metal prices because as Doug said, a lot of this stuff's not going to come out of the ground, especially if you layer on the ESG and you layer on the need for specialized tailings and the need for all this stuff. The only way our industry is going to be able to handle that burden is through higher metal prices. I, I, I don't see any other way. Let, let's we're, we're going to talk about the macro environment. This is yeah. one thing I want all of us to chat about. But before we get there, I do want to spend just if we can just a real quick minute or two talking about one more deal that came down the pipeline <laughs> uh, last week. And that was the first majestic acquisition of Jarrett Cannon in Nevada. And I don't necessarily want to talk about the mine itself. I want to talk about the mill and roaster situation. 
Uh, we reported it. We had a great interview with Chad Peters earlier this week. There are three roasters in the entire state of Nevada. Two are owned by Nevada Gold Mines. The third's on Jarrett Canyon. And so now Keith Newmeyer and First Majestic owned that single independent roaster in the entire state. What is that a great business model? Is he on to something that maybe a lot of the market forgot to pay attention to? And what are the implications when it comes to if sulfide ore is going to be the next age of Nevada gold mining, what kind of implications is this going to have? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a great strategic investment. Um, all I can say, it's just quite interesting to me with all this positive talk about silver, all these silver miners want to be in gold. Um, if you look at First Majestic, if you look at Fortuna, if you look at Pan American, um, you know, they've all got silver at the end of their, their company name. They should, they should take that off and put gold there. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. And I, I think it's a, a great strategic play. You didn't bet the farm on it. You know, it's 400, what was it, $400 million deal um, for a company that's worth, what, two or three billion bucks. So um, yeah, and, and let me tell you, you know, as we're looking at projects all around the place, there's a lot more projects with refractory ore and you go, okay, so I've got refractory ore, what can I do with that? Yeah, maybe I can produce a con, where can I sell that con? Um, and you know that those, that roaster um, at Jarrett Canyon is, is underutilized right now, it's, it's only at half capacity. So, interesting. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there won't be another roaster built in uh, in Nevada anytime soon, for sure. I, you know, uh, you wonder if it can have some play into into some of the Idaho operations that people are looking at, you know, in time. Uh, um, I, I mean, they still manage to Alex's point. It's funny because for all the silver bugs out there, First Majestic, you know, were roughly 60, 62 percent, something like that of their their re revenues from silver. Actually, I think they got it up to 65%. And that compared with um, Pan American, Heckler, Kerr, you know, the companies, if you ask a typical US investor, you know, uh, they say, oh, I've got my silver exposure in those. They were all down in the 25% kind of range now, at least the SS uh, Silver Standard, you know, changed their name to reflect the fact that their business had changed. Uh, First Majestic, are still well above the rest of the silver plays. I wondered how it was going to play with their silver bug audience, though, because there's quite the, you know, the first majestic cult out there, which has meant it's always traded at a premium. Um, but it, it, it was well received by the market. And I thought it was a smart deal, potentially as well, a, a kind of outside of the roaster. You know, they have some issues in Mexico right now. They're, you know, they're single jurisdiction with a, with a new government that is, is firing shots across across their bow. Um, you know, I think it was a, a very good strategic decision while they they, they worked that problem out uh, to offer that second jurisdiction, not just to their shareholders, but also to, to Mexico and, and saying, look, we're here. We like operating in Mexico, but you know what? Enough's enough. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, um, a little bit outside my wheelhouse, uh, I, I dealt with refractory sulfides a bit more, Trevor, if you recall back in my earlier career when I was with ATAC Resources in the Yukon, and, and they had a large refractory sulfide gold component. And I think, yeah, that, back to our original point on on disruption and all that kind of, I mean, 
you know, metallurgy is certainly an area of our business that we could use some new inventions in. So, uh, you know, I think I think moving ahead, uh, one of the things that could really change the supply dynamic is if someone figures out refractory sulfides uh, in a more, you know, uh, cost effective and and less possibly environmentally degradations like way so so i mean you know i, I haven't heard anything because we're not really in that in that ballpark but yeah it'd be interesting to know if there's any sort of technologies coming down the pike that can that can assist with that um the one thing i'll say on, on that is when we worked with barrick because we had a jv with barrick at the time uh ed coke who was a former vpx at barrick was our technical advisor and he uh he made an interesting point he said sometimes the bigger guys actually prefer those sulfide bodies because apparently once you get them humming correctly they're actually much more predictable and you could stick to your guidance easier so barrick actually quite liked finding large sort of uh, who wouldn't like finding a pipeline but you know um you know those kind of ore bodies because once you get them humming through the autoclave you can actually really be predictive in your guidance and really hit guidance so uh, whereas they had a little bit more variability with their oxides, but uh, yeah, no, they, they, it was one interesting point I heard. Again, that's not really my specialty in any way, but uh, from from my previous experience, sort of working around Barrick, uh, that, that's but, something we heard. So, but you know, you, you know enough to be dangerous. You know enough to be dangerous. Uh, yeah, a little bit enough. To be, exactly. <laughs> that's like that's the promoters know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Just on a tangent to all that, um, uh, Trevor. Interesting. You've picked three companies: Ivanhoe Mines. Minera Alamos Inc., Rio 2 Limited, none of us have got gold, silver, or copper in our name. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't, don't do it, Doug. Don't do it. Don't no, do it. I, just wait, I, just uh, just wait until just wait until Doug drills some tin some there. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. There tin. you go. There you go. The issue comes with new technologies and stuff is like as investors, we've been groomed to, you know, not just as management teams, even as investors to treat anything that's kind of maybe new and, and black boxy in it, you know, in its early days of, of advancement with incredible skepticism. And when you look at the history of this with good reason. Um, so, you know, I think you know, a lot of that is probably going to come from R&D behind the scenes at the majors, uh, just like they're, they're coming out. There was someone at, uh, there was an article this week, BHP talking about new techniques to really show show things at the 400 meter level as if, as if they're in surface. And I think we, we have to rely um, rely on a lot of R&D spend behind the scenes. Um, although interestingly, and, and the problem is, that a lot of the technology that's being talked about, Chesapeake's a good example. Alex Pangorn got involved with there with, with vending in a, a technology. I don't think anything's been told about what is this technology. So you just got to kind of take, this stuff is going to be years in the making. And, and again, I think that then brings us back to the point. Just of going back to what we were just discussing. Yeah, but going back to what we were discussing before about majors with cash. Wouldn't it be great to hear a major say, you know, we've got you know, a billion, two billion dollars in the bank, and we're going to invest five hundred million dollars in R and D? But they've you done know? that. They did that before the last cycle. I mean, here before, long before the podcast, when oh, yeah. I was just starting out, you know, Barrick came to Denver to do a hackathon, and they had done a series of hackathons with a, another group out of Australia, and they spent a lot of money to try to hack their way to find new technolo technological disruptions. And that was one of the things that people held their feet to the fire is that you spent so much money in R&D and technology 
that a lot of it could have gone to actually doing share buybacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think all, so all, it all comes full circle. Yeah, I think well, this goes back to Matthew again because this is going to be great for metal prices because if nobody's investing in this R and D, then the metal's not going to come out of the ground easily, and uh, you know the, the stuff that is is going to be worth a lot. Then you're going to have to have higher metal prices. You're going to have yeah. to. Well, Trevor, I actually remember that because I was doing some coverage. I think I was in the press back then, and they had brought in uh, a lovely lady, Michelle Ash, I believe, Barrett had mm -hmm. at the time, was their chief innovation officer. Um, and she's, she's still involved, I think, tertiarily in the business. But yeah, I remember that was the first thing. Mark Bristow came in and hack and slash. That was the first division that just got actually torpedoed when he came in was was the uh, quote-unquote innovation yeah. division. And a lot of them were doing those hackathons back then. I remember that in, in, in conjunction with Google, in conjunction with with Microsoft. Like Amazon, there was a lot Amazon, of- Amazon Web yeah. Services was a big part. And they have a big, they have actually some market share in mining, Amazon does. It's pretty fascinating to watch. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe we do need a guy like Elon Musk, not just looking for the, <laughs> for the metal to actually uh, build his cars, but to actually be coming in with his innovative mind, whatever we want to like, you know, think about the one thing he has a mind that works on completely different tangents that it really is out of space um you know maybe maybe his mind is already in mars uh, on mars but uh you know we, we do need fresh thoughts fresh ideas but you know and, and maybe part of the education we need to do as the mining industry um is is to educate up-and-coming brains that we need their help you know and 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 have people thinking outside the box because we're we're you know, maybe we are too guilty of, of living in that past, in that 19th century way of doing things. Uh, and we, we need fresh blood to come in and be creative and, and enough management teams to set, support it and go, you know, go, okay, let's, let's see, let, could this innovate our business? Uh, we've seen it in, in how we approach ore sorting and, you know, the electrification of truck circuits. Well, Barrick did that at Goldstrike back in, in the early 90s. You know, it was a big thing at the time, um, but I think we need, we've got to have the next generation of that. Maybe it's the next generation of people that are actually going to lead us out of this kind of- I think, I think uh, just as we were talking about um, consolidation in the sector, I think there needs to be collaboration on these technology fronts because just, you know, I, I don't know enough detail about this thing you were talking about, but I saw it uh, about BHP and this uh, technology they're talking about you know, being able to see 400 meters below the surface or something like that. I mean, just imagine if two or three guys got together and said, okay, we're going to put collaboratively 2 billion bucks into doing that. I mean, that would be send a positive message out to everybody. I mean, it's going to take years to develop, et cetera. We all know that. But to me, that's part of the innovation that we need to see. And that's where the young guys, I mean, nobody wants to be a geologist or a mining engineer because it's dirty, shitty work, right? But if you you bring the technology into it, more more guys that are you know these these computer boffins and software boffins and all that sort of thing are going to go shit. You know, let's get into mining because they're right into this R and D and you know whatever technology type stuff. I I, I just think it's something that the business well, there's, should be. There's a lot at. to unpack there. I think the first the funny thing is the Elon Musk thing. I always laugh. Um, <laughs> no because, kidding. Because like he just. He, <laughs> He just pops his head up and is like, mine more nickel. And we're all like, oh, thanks, man. But um, uh, no, the, the thing that we're, I mean, uh, the Ivan, Ivanhoe Mines and then the Ivanhoe Group, which, which is more Ivanhoe Capital and Robert for the separate, separate enterprises, which do overlap quite a bit with technology. 
um, we we end up talking to you know European automakers to to Silicon Valley types to more growth oriented innovation funds, and and it's just you know a lot of it's like Doug said is education because they're so far removed from what we do that they have absolutely no clue about the supply chain. They like they think Nvidia RTX 3060s come out of a box. Like they think GPUs and chips and all this stuff they just they order them and they show up. And, and Doug mentioned tin, we're starting to see some stress in, in the tin supply chain because of COVID and also some geospatial issues and stuff like that. Um, but the more money they they pour in and, and we're seeing, we could talk about the macro Trevor, I guess now, but the amount of money we're seeing in the system, that's gonna that's gonna reveal the cracks in the supply chains, especially as we, we balkanize them and, and separate things. I mean, you're just gonna see these people have no clue that they're gonna run out of chips. They have no clue that they're gonna run out of you know, copper wire, copper cabling, yeah. that, that they're not going to have enough nickel for the batteries. I mean, that, there's just a, a widespread um, lack of realization sort of in what this is going to take. And, and it's sort of how far behind we are because of like Doug and Alex said, we've been undercapitalized for what, 25 years, maybe more uh, with, with a small, you know, hiccup in the dot-com bubble. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, supply destruction is, is pervasive and it's, it's, it's insidious. And the people at the top of the supply chain have no idea what the supply destruction in the mineral in the mineral industry has been like over the last twenty years. They have no idea. Just mine more copper. If you if you are interested, people listening out there, if you think you are the techno king of mining, please send your resume to <laughs> dramshaw at mineraalamos.com. I can't wait to see who we recruit. Who was the uh, the something the something of coin? Was the master CFO? of coin? Master, master of coin. coin techno king. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. That 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 supply <laughs> destruction is one of the big structural things. Trevor, I know you mentioned in your email. Uh, are we in a super cycle? A are we? Yeah. So let's let's talk about the macro environment because. Uh, uh, see, we've been kind of on a journey here on the podcast last couple of months, trying to tell kind of the bigger picture stories outside of mining and mineral exploration, because obviously the macro environment on a global scale has implications with how metals are priced, uh, how companies can be financed, uh, where the market comes in and puts their capital to, to use here. Um, so I guess I'll the very first question I have, uh, you know, obviously we're a little bit biased, but are we in the beginnings of a commodities super cycle. Matthew. <laughs> well, uh, we, know, sure. we know his answer. We know. <laughs> it, actually, you know what, it's very interesting. I, I, I think we're in uncharted water, frankly. I, I don't think we've seen anything quite like this before, um, both due to the speed and, and, and um, you know, direction of technology in terms of what we're seeing, um, like we talked about transparency, but also, the growth of some of these technologies in terms of renewable energy and how much they're going to require in terms of metals. I don't think we've seen anything like this structurally that we could compare historically to. Um, what we can't compare historically to is the supply destruction. I think we've seen, you know, previously um, super cycles largely based on either industrialization or something related to it, driving demand above what we can supply. And, and I think without a question, um, even without we could get into the green energy thematic and all that kind of stuff. But if you just look at it strictly from a demand, uh, demand supply, you know, a fundamental viewpoint. Um, yeah, these, these are, okay, Robert Freeland calls it the revenge of the miners. Je Jeffrey Curry from Goldman Sachs calls it the revenge of the old economy. I mean, however you want to phrase it, 
these are industries and you can include oil, you can include gas, you can include mining, all these industries, all these industries right now that are getting inflated like crazy, if you actually look at what's going on, um, are because they've been undercapitalized. And, and that's because growth stocks and, and the tech bubble and all these disturbance things have been generating such a huge uh, outperformance in terms of capital that they've just sucked everything away from a lot of sectors that are traditionally capital intensive. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, structurally speaking, um, we could talk a little bit about the structural demand side stuff with the green energy demand and what Elon's talking about. But on the supply side, yeah, first and foremost, I think we got to look at this and say, hey, guys, like, you know, you can't just pop your head up and say mine more nickel after undercapitalizing the industry for 30 years. That's not well, really how it, it works. And I, and I think it's fair. To, we can continue. To, we should have this discussion, but we've got to separate you know, the industrial metals complex away from the precious metals mm -hmm. because the macro environments I think are, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of overlap, but very different things. So let's stick with the base metal environment here. Uh, we, I, I'm going to be honest with you. We published the tin episode, tin special a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my Twitter account, my emails, I never got, I had never had so many uh, responses after since after one episode since we got from that tin episode i mean it's fascinating information but it just goes to show you if whatever technology advances you have or wherever the supply chain uh you know wherever it's getting locked up you mentioned chips it all comes back to something that you know this industry produces it seems like Yeah, no, surely. I think, um, and then central to 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 what what the precious metal side. I mean, if you really want to get into the the sort of macro tourist element of this, um, what we're looking at is is like we said, a, a a system that is absolutely awash in liquidity, and it is low interest liquidity, and it is effort like it is it is pervasive and everywhere. Um, and when it comes to assets. Um, money is a lot like water. It'll find its way into every little crack and cranny of every asset class you can imagine that's connected with what people think is going to go up in value. So, you know, right now we're seeing just so much, so much money in the system. And I think you've seen that even in the, um, the amount of money the juniors and the developers have been able to raise. I think, I think um, even on the precious metal side, you're seeing greater access to capital. You're certainly seeing that on the base metal side. Um, so, yeah, I think the big thing we got to talk about in terms of gold um, if you want to talk about uh, gold, Bitcoin, silver, if you want to get into sort of that that area is, is you know, what are the 10 year treasury yields going to do? What are interest rates going to do? That, that's, the saga. Um, that's, that's the saga. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 been fascinating to watch. I mean, uh, earlier in this episode this afternoon, we just published the first segment of the show is with Ed Harrison from Real Vision, who's done a lot of writing about the vigilante bond market. <laughs> the Clinton era. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really fascinating. You know, Doug and Alex, for gold mine developers such as yourself, I mean, I know there's really important things on the business side that you got to pay attention to as far as getting this stuff built and actually to a point where you're starting producing the metal. But are you following these macro developments on the global financial system, the bond market, the move and rise in the dollar, uh, you know, the Fed coming in and basically doubling down on QE and all that stuff that Jerome Powell said earlier this week? Well, I mean, Doug, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a technical guy. Um, you know, I, 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 just, I just look at fundamentals. I look at history. Um, all those things that you've mentioned are competitors uh, in, for gold. Gold for me is virtually, you know, it's a currency. I don't, I don't see it as a, as a metal, it's a currency. Um, so it competes with all those. Silver, I just see as a, uh, 
a polymetallic mining byproduct, so I don't have any affinity with silver. Um, you know, and and you know, gold's probably found a new base um, over fifteen hundred dollars. Um, it was at twelve fifty for five years or so, uh, between fourteen and nineteen, uh, two thousand and fourteen, two thousand nineteen. So, you know, I I, I think. It'll go where it's going to go, um, and there'll be fads, you know, tokens. Today, I saw non-fungible tokens talked about on Twitter. I'm going, what the hell is that? Trading anyway, cards. And they're, they're virtual trading cards, basically. Yeah. 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 You know, and so I'm a physical guy. What happened to bricks and mortar, anyway? I mean, <laughs> but um, so, so yeah, that's the competition we've got with gold and uh, against gold and. But I think gold's in a good space. Uh, Doug, what do you think? Well, yeah, I, I, we're very similar in, in, in what we're doing when near, both near-term producers and everything else. But the, I think one of the big similarities, Alex, between both our companies is the business model itself was created in our minds and then on paper and on CDAR filings back in that 1250 gold environment. So we, we, we both were building a business model that was gonna survive in those times. Because companies had started swinging for the fences a little bit more and everything else, you know, we'd actually almost convinced people that $1,300, $1,400 gold was not a good gold price because there were a lot of companies that were bleeding red ink. You only have to look at Q1 of last year at gold average $1,500 an ounce. There were a lot of those producers that still hadn't worked out the sins of the past that were bleeding red ink on the, you know, uh, at, in a, in a $1,500 gold environment, which is a very healthy one. You know, uh, I'm not going to say I'd bite you, bite your arm off for 1500 right now, because I think Alex is right that we've got a new base, but the reality is we built our models in, in many ways, the same way that the majors in that five years had to streamline and rationalize their costs. So now they're printing money and that should be a, a, the way a business in any sector does. It's not contingent on higher commodity prices to make it work. In fact, you'll appeal to your investors if they realize that you've, you've got a business model that works at 1250 gold. If gold happens to go to 1700, they should feel that love. They should feel that love on the bottom line and they should hope it's going back to the very start of this call that you're not a company and because Alex picked on one, I'll pick on one, like Aura Minerals that I think has 110 million in cash right now and they're just paying a $60 million um, uh, special dividend out. Why? Like, what does that say about your business model that, that you know, you've, you've, capped, you've capped out at that stage? No, there's, there's better ways to do it. But the way you, the way you make sure, the way you, you, you can make sure that you are a growth story is making sure that you can work in, in, in the worst of times. Like Alex did when he was building Rio2, like we are with Monero. Um, so... It's not that I view, to your question, Trevor, the long-winded answer is, is always away with me. You know, I don't view all this other stuff as irrelevant, but to some extent, I can view it as a little bit of kind of background noisy. I, I think if you're a higher cost producer, you have to take it far more seriously than companies that are gonna be able to operate in the worst of times as well as the best of times. Um, so, you know, uh, 
Bitcoin as a distract. RBC came out with a very interesting report this year, uh, this week, I should say, talking about how, um, you know, Bitcoin as competition and drawing funds away from gold, it really doesn't stack up. Yes, there has been certain allocation there, but it, it, it's not the case. And, and you know, it inf I'm, not, I'm not a Bitcoiner. I'm a gold guy. It's what I've been doing for, you know, since I went to university and I, I love this space. Um, you know, so I don't think Bitcoin folk should be like launching drop gold campaigns. I don't think gold companies should be deriding Bitcoin. I think both Bitcoin and gold should be looking at fiat and going, that's our target. And, and both can benefit, but I'll, I'll always stick with something that has a 5,000 year history than a 12 year history. And that's not a knock on Bitcoin. It's just, you know, um, just, just my feeling towards gold. Well, it, it, the arguments for holding either gold or Bitcoin or silver, whatever, it's the exact same argument. It's just a different medium. Uh, and it, it just kind of feels like the hodlers are so anti-metal because it's physical, you know, and you can't carry it around in your phone that they think some think gold's going to go to zero because the digital money and currency of something like a Bitcoin is going to win out. It's like, well, you can't yeah. you, you can't you can't drop five thousand years of monetary no. metals such as gold for twelve fucking years of Bitcoin. No, no, you guys, it's the foundational principle, I think, Doug and, and Trevor, you hit on is is I mean, like, look at it. Okay, so what's someone doing when they buy these things? Physical metal or Bitcoin? They're they're removing their wealth from the system. They're removing us from fractional reserve banking. They're removing it from the fiat currency system, and they know that. The boogeyman, whoever that is, whoever your boogeyman is, everyone has a bit of a different one, whether it's Jerome Powell or, or you know, one of the JP Morgan guys or whatever, but, um, you know, you're removing it from their reach. So, yeah, I mean, there's an, there's an element of competition. I think Bitcoin has identified gold as a pool of capital it can steal from, and that's why they assault it over and over and over again, because they look at how much they mark a cap of gold and they say, well, we're not going to get that from anywhere else. So we'll just attack those guys. So, I mean, at the end of the day, they have some similarities. I'm kind of agnostic on both. I actually just finished Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, and he hates Bitcoin. <laughs> he doesn't like Bitcoin <laughs> uh, because of the environmental issues. Um, and and uh, the one thing I think if 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 Bitcoin's going to implode or not work, uh, the energy paradox is, is, is one thing that may, may end it because it is entirely energy intensive and it has a carbon footprint. I've seen different numbers thrown around, but as big as France or something. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think what Bitcoin's sort of missing, it's an expertly designed entity. I don't know if it was pr uh, particularly well conceived uh, because it, it's sort of based on a foundation of unlimited resources and we don't have those. So um, at the end of the day, and they'll come back and say, oh, well, you, when you build a gold mine, you use power and you, you, you dig and stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, can you show me a picture of your Bitcoin mine? Because when I show you a picture of my mine, I've got 8,000 people working there from the local communities that are making money and getting upskilled. Can you make the same claim about Bitcoin mining? Because I don't know if you can. So, um, you know, that's the big thing for us is we're community builders and anybody who builds mines the right way knows that mining is one of the biggest community builders in the world. And, you know, if I'm looking at stores of value for my money to keep it away from big, bad fed boogeyman, you know, maybe if I have a little morality in it, I, I'd rather have gold because I know guys like Alex and, and, and everybody are, you know, building mines and employing the right people and upskilling people, making new engineers and new geologists. So, you know, that in my opinion is more productive. And I think what we have to look at is as, as a society and as a, 
as everybody is humanity. God, you know, it's good. It's good to have you right. back, man. Well, what, what, what's the most productive <laughs> use of our resources? What are the most productive I'm just use of our resources? Say, Doug, Doug, it's great that we've got a young guy on this team here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, all yeah. that stuff just went. You know. <laughs> well, we we need to look at the most productive use of our resources because we have finite resources and we have a growing population and everyone's urbanizing. And if we're really serious about cleaning up the air and cleaning up the world. Um, then we're going to have to be selective about what, how, where we allocate our resources. And I think the most important thing we can do is allocate them to the most productive methods we can. I think mining is one of those. Um, and I'm not sure a lot of this digital stuff is is particularly productive in a in a in a conventional way. So we have to just be careful that we're not killing uh, our economies um, and our jobs and our wages. And and you know, Trevor, you could talk about the yields and the inflation, and a lot of that goes into into um, you know the are we issuing productive or unproductive debt? And if, if we're just incessantly issuing unproductive debt over and over and over again, that just murders productivity. That's, and you, and you, so- You nailed it, right? you nailed it, you yeah. nailed it. It's, it's, if you're gonna go into debt, you gotta have a way to source it or resource it and it's not. I well, can mean, you imagine the, if we took out money to build a mine and then just didn't build the mine? Like, but you had no productivity? Yeah, right? Yeah. Like we, we borrowed a bunch of money and then just, oh, no, no, we, you know, we built a theme park instead. Yeah. One thing uh, I will say, Alex, these young guys, they have a bigger carbon footprint than you and I because they have to go to barber shops, get that, that that's stuff true. nicely. That's true. There has to be a bigger carbon footprint uh, than us. I'll that's sleep true. well at night knowing that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fellas. This is awesome. Uh, I'm glad we got to make this happen. We, we, we are coming up on an hour of the conversation, so I want to be very mindful. But uh, this is the first big panel discussion we've done here on the podcast. Um, I know I don't know if you noticed, uh, we're coming up on the, our 1,000th episode here in a couple of weeks of Mining Stock Daily. And so right. we'd, like to, we'd like to do more of things like this uh, as kind of leading up to that. Uh, I don't know if it's a big event or whatnot, but it is meaningful. And, um, you know, uh, just got so much respect for the three of you. And I'm glad you could all come on and uh, kind of share your thoughts in this panel. And obviously, thank you for keeping the banter respectable. And uh, we'll, we'll it was not a single swear word. I was impressed. Oh, no, oh there was quite a few. Was, were you not paying attention? No, I guess I just, blo- maybe I'm like, a, I'm a new father. So maybe I just block out <laughs> curse, curse words. I don't know. It's... Yeah, yeah. I've just, I've just, I've just blank spotted them now. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're a really good, smooth talker when you went on, when not, when you, when you went on your ramp, but obviously you weren't paying attention to anybody else. Yeah, no, that was, <laughs> that's fair. I have a, you sound like my wife now. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doug Ramshaw from Monero Alamos, Alex Black from Rio 2, Matthew Keevil. I'm serious, man. It's so good to have you back. <laughs> He's from Ivanhoe Mines. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. Have yourself a great rest of your weekend, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, thanks Trevor. Trevor. Thank you. Ciao. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.